comes from the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 7 through 16. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good morning. Hello to those online, those that will watch us later, and hello to you. Uh, first of all, it's so great to see so many people here today. I feel like it's a great Sunday and a great turnout, and you know what? It makes me feel all more pumped and amped to be here, and it's uh, just warms my heart to see so many friends, especially some friends I don't think I've met, and uh, some friends I haven't seen in a while, so thank you for being here today. We are in a sermon series, and it's called Battles and Heroes, and I have a service slide this week, because last week, you know, we got a little tied up there, and we didn't get a chance, but we have one today. And of course, if you're reading along, I've been putting red herrings in our bulletin, because the sermon titles are actually declaring the heroes of the story. The sermon titles are actually declaring the, the evil bad guys of the story. And so last week, we had the Amalekites. This week, we have the Midianites. Dun, dun, dun. But we'll be seeing, uh, those are red herrings, because uh, I want you to not know who's I'm going to be talking about in the story. And of course, if you read, uh, I don't this is going to be read ahead and see what's in the bulletin. But as we're here today, we're going to be looking at this story that we just read the stories around it that are happening. Now, it's interesting because I told you before, we, we kind of delved into this idea that, you know, part of this, part of this, part of the Bible that is, it's hard for us to kind of understand it and think about because everybody's out to get everybody. This is the Wild West shootout, if you will. If you like Wild Westerns, this story especially is a Wild West story. In fact, it's almost the typology, if you look at it, kind of put upon it, you know, you almost got you know, all the different things. You got the bad guys, you got you know, all the townspeople that are living there, and the bad guys come in and rob them, basically, and they got to get the deputized, the sheriff. The sheriff has to come to town, set everything right. All those tropes, this story has it, right? And we're going to be looking at that in just a minute. But as we do look at the story, it's, it's such an interesting time because it is, it's basically fight for your life or die. And that's what this world is right now. And in fact, if you ever look at this, the history of the Canaanite region, this whole area, no one really owns it, right? In the sense that, like, even before the Israelites came out of Egypt and came back, people are just 
wiping each other out, left and right. It is a place of war. And the other big problem that they have is that this is a land in between big powerhouses that later uh, that started rising like Egypt and uh, other big powerhouses that come along the way like Babylon as well as Syrians. And so this ends up being just a territory of war. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. This is a land of war. And it is basically, when the Israelites go in there, you know, we look at this hard part where God says, hey, you know what? I've judged these people. I want you to go on and wipe them out. I want you to settle here. I want you guys to be placed right here. This is the land that I promised. This is the land that I'm going to work out of. This is the land that's going to eventually call the United States at the time. But of course, we don't look at the Bible that this is the land that Jesus Christ is going to come and the whole world is going to hear about it. Because you know, let's put Jesus right here in this place. And so there's this hard part of the story of like, if, you know, when we read Jesus' story and Jesus' teachings, the coming part of this part, there's, there's that, that tension there, right? That we have. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And so if you're more curious about that, you can go back and listen to last week or even to the coming weeks as we talk a little more about that. But this is the story of Gideon. And the story of Gideon is a fun one, because I said it is a wild west. Now, you got to understand who these Eastern peoples are. They're Malachites who we talked about last week, but there's another group that's kind of just like them. It's called the Midianites. And if you think geographically, almost everybody knows the Sinai Peninsula, right? It's that triangle over there, just east of Egypt. You know, there's the Red Sea on the left side of it, if you will, if you're looking at a map, or on the west side, if you will. And then on the right side, the east side, is the Gulf of Aqaba. And right on the eastern part of that, that's the Midianites, right there. And so as you're looking, it's basically just south of modern-day Israel, east of Sinai. The Midianites roamed there, if you will, and that was their land that they had. But there was this thing that was happening. So they, at this point, the conquest has already happened. Joshua and them, they've already come in. They've had all these wars and all these fights. And there's all these events that have taken place. But they've settled down in the land. And God said, hey, when you go there, what you warn you, do not... He said a number of times. So it's like when you're a parent, you go, I'm going to repeat myself five times in this one sentence. So you get it. Do not. Do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. Right? Do not worship the gods that you're going into of the land. Do not do that. I abhor them. I hate them. They, all the idols that they worship are disgusting to me. They are horrible gods. Do not do it. Stay faithful to me. Me alone. And of course, the people go in, and, and one of the enculturation things that happens, if you will, one of the contextualization things, if you use modern terms nowadays, is the people get there and they go, you know what? We have the blessing of God. But it was really hard in the ancient times for people not to think that the gods lived in the land. And so the old gods that were there, they needed to appease them too. And so they didn't listen to what God had said. And so they set up all sorts of altars and worship sites. Not just they existed before them, but they themselves set it up and continued to worship these gods of the land that God had said, go in, I want you to have, want you to have nothing to do with them whatsoever. Destroy those places of worship. But they didn't always do this. And so this is one of those stories, of course, that we see this. In fact, the book of Judges is basically that story told time and time again. It's one of these circular stories of the Israelites are there, they're the people of God, and they start worshiping all these other gods. And God says, well, fine. You know what? I've proved to you that I'll fight for you. I will defend you. I will do all these things. But I've told you not to do this. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to fight for you. And so all these people start coming in and start just causing all sorts of trouble to the Israelites' life. And then the Israelites go, God, help us, right? Please, please, please help us. And then God, of course, eventually sends somebody, raises up a leader, deputizes someone, if you will, gives them that star and says, all right, you sheriff, 
go to town, right? And the new person comes in gunslinging and all this type of stuff. And of course, they win the day, and the whole town's people go, yay! And then they go, you know, it's good for a time, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's go ship the gods again, right? So they ban it before, and this goes over and over and over. And it's a time in the stories where even the heroes of this time aren't always the heroes, if you will. Just like a Western, you know, when there's like that bad, like the good guy's sort of a bad guy too, you know? It's kind of like that in the book of Judges where the good guys are not always perfectly good guys. Sometimes and oftentimes the good guys in these stories are kind of like that, that gray character. There's the good and the bad, if you will, and they're doing their best with the fighting for the good side. Now, it's interesting because in this story, of course, as we read in scripture, the Midianites have done this. And if you read it right before, there's a whole prologue, if you will, to Gideon in, the, in chapter 6 of the Bible here, where uh, Judges tells us that the Midianites and the Malachites have sort of teamed up, and what they're doing is they're coming into the Israelites, and they're just camping on all their stuff, and they're bringing on their sheep and all their camels and everything that they have, all their things, and all the harvest. They're just coming in, setting up camp, squatting on the land, letting all their animals eat everything, leaving it wasted land, basically, and just getting out of town and going back to their homeland. And so they're they're basically just coming in, you know, like a wild western theme, right, where the the banks there, and then the bad guys all come in and take everything from the town, and the town is left with pretty much nothing. Bad guys get it all and just leave town, leave the town to its you know, desiccation, if you will. And this has happened. Again, in the minute the Israelites are crying out to the Lord, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And in fact, this is chapter 6 of the story. This, is our, this cycle has already happened a couple times. And when it does, it's so amazing because as we read in this story, there's a wine press, and wine presses are kind of like these kind of bigger barrels that you, can, that you can climb in, you can hide in, they're big enough to hide in. And so, in the wine press is Gideon, who's not wine pressing, but threshing wheat, right? He's able and able to save some wheat, and he's in the wine press, and he's threshing it, which basically means you're chopping it up and doing all these things, and basically separating the, the, the seed from the, the chaff, if you will. And you do this normally on a very windy hill uh, out in the distance, and so it blows all the chaff away. He's doing it in a very contained spot that no one can see him. <coughs> and he's in there hiding, basically. He's 100% hiding from the Amalekites, the Midianites. And of course, the angel of the Lord, God, shows it up and says, Hey, greetings. You remember the terms he used? One of the most ironic things to call a person who's threshing in the middle of a wine press to hide himself. He says, the scripture says, Greetings, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. And so telling, because when God deputizes you, you may not look the part, you may not fit the part, but it doesn't matter because God's power is going to make it happen. And so, of course, Gideon is very timid in this story. You see it many times when Gideon doubts. And so he even says, and we read the scripture about, <clears throat> how can you, the Lord God's abandoned us. What are you talking about, good sir? Right? And the angels basically say, no. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm showing up. And I'm going to send you. And Gideon's like, why me? Right? <laughs> I'm the least of me in my clan. I'm the least, and we're the least clan in the whole place. Like, why are you choosing me? And the, and the angels pretty much say, nope, you're going to go. I'm sending you. And so, of course, Gideon's a little timid. He says, all right, I'll tell you what. Stay here. I'm going to make some offering to God. I'm going to bring it back and set it up and, and, and kind of do an offering thing here. And he does that. And the angel goes, fire. Right? And Gideon goes, okay, all right. Now we're talking. Like, God, this is, this is, this is a God thing. I'm not just making it up in my life. And, in fact, Gideon doubts along this whole story. 
But as he goes on, the story gets interesting because the first thing, before Gideon is commanded to go fight the Amalekites and the Midianites, the first thing that he's told to do is to go up to the altar of Baal and Asherah, who were not Yahweh God, who were the gods of the Canaanites that they weren't supposed to worship. He's supposed to go up there and tear it down and, oh, by the way, it's his dad's altar. <laughs> and so, talk about awkward family moments, right? Like, but he does it. He follows God's commandment. He goes up. He smashes down the altar. He rebuilds it according to the Lord. He even sacrifices some bulls and does some holy sacrifices there. The next day, all the people get up and they go, what happened? What happened? And they find Gideon and they say, what did you do? And Gideon you know, tells them all stuff. And basically they go, all right, got to put this guy to death. Because you know what? He's upset the gods of this land and we can't dare upset them. So we need to put this guy to death so that the gods bless us. And he his own father, Joash, speaks up and says, well, look, I'll tell you what. Baal can fend for himself, can he? Don't put him to death. Let him go. And so his father speaks up for him. But his name became Jeru Baal, as well as Gideon in that moment, as in contends with Baal. And in fact, when we read the rest of the story, he's often called Gideon, but sometimes he's called Jeru Baal, which means, again, contending with Baal. And so this is one of those good stories where he goes up, the Midianites and the Amalekites are this huge number of people with all sorts of soldiers and all sorts of things they have and not all this defense. And they're camping out. And so Joah, or Gideon that is, gets, gets up and he goes and he calls them forth, the Sally's force, you know, calls the, the call, all the people come to him and they start an army and they got about like 32,000 people. They're about to go smash them, you know, as much as they can and Gideon's going to lead them. Except this story changes where God says, nope, I'll tell you what, we're going to do something different. Instead of everybody just fighting, I'm going to whittle you down. And so there's this story where, first of all, Gideon says, all right, uh, if anybody's scared to fight, go home. And basically, a whole bunch go home, and there's about 10,000 left or so. And so he's got about 10,000 men. He says, all right, God, are you ready? God says, nope, you need less. Now, there's tens of thousands of the Midianites that they're about to go fight. And God says, nope, you got too many. We're going to pray this down this more. So he says, come down to this well, this spring. There's a spring, and he goes to, uh, uh, they go down to it, and they go down to the spring, and God says, watch how, how people drink. And if they drink like a dog, and they lick it up with the tongues, which is such a weird image, but anyways, I don't know why you have a cup and not do this, but apparently they're licking it with their tongues as they do this. If they lick it, they lick it up, pick that, set them aside, and if they don't lick it up, if they kneel down and drink from this spring, set them aside. So he does this, and there's only 300 that lick it up like a dog. And so he says to them, God says, all right, send everybody else home, take those 300. There's that moment where Gideon's like, I want to sell a fire. I'll tell you what, I'll set up some other things. And so he sets out this fleece, right? There's a whole story of the fleece getting wet or not wet and vice versa. And he sets it out twice to test God. And of course, God is patient with them and does these different things. But eventually, they get those 300 people. And God has them, you know, and Gideon's there. And basically separates those 300 people into hundred man units, so there's three of them. And they go around and they all have a bunch of pots with torches, and they surround all the Midianites and the Malachites, and they surround them, and at night, in the middle of the watch hour, if you will, they smash the pots and they start chanting, you know, the Lord, a sword for Gideon, a sword for Gideon, a mighty warrior. And all of a sudden, everybody wakes up in the camp, there's no bad guys to fight, but they see all these torches, all these shouts surrounding them, all stuff, there's confusion. They start fighting each other, there's all this chaos, they end up fleeing away, and then all of a sudden, 
not only does Gideon pursue them, but he gives calls to all the surrounding tribes, and the surrounding tribes bring their battle warriors, they pursue them out, chase them off. The day is won for now in this story. Because, of course, this is only chapter 6, and we know that there's many more chapters after this, and the story repeats itself in similar fashions on and on and on. But the important thing, I think, to take from this story is that moment. And out of all the moments of this story, as good as it is to tell, there's one moment, I think, that's extremely telling, and it was the very first thing he had to do. The very first thing. The very first thing was, hey, Gideon, y'all can back come down. You want my blessing? You want to win the day? You want the Midianites off your property and off your land and to have your food and your blessing and all the things you need in life? The altar's got to come some way. And you know, Gideon, who seems pretty timid guy, I just imagine the scripture that says we're saying, but I just imagine my putting myself in the shoes. He's like, "Ooh, I gotta go to Dad's house. Ooh, I gotta tear down Dad's puppet statue." Ooh, it's like it's like if your dad had a statue of Brutus, right? And you had to go in and like tear it in his living room, right? You had to just tear it down and smash it, right? Okay, I know some of you are Ohio State fans, but that was the best I could come up with. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? But it's like it's just like that, right? Where this. You have to go down and do this, and that it is faithful. And the simple truth is that one of the big things we can take from this is, you know what, you and I put up altars to idols in our life all the time. And even when we're doing our best to serve the Lord from the temptations of this world, is of course, each and every moment, each and every day we wake up, we have another opportunity to set up an idol. And if we're not careful, we set it up, we worship it, we bring it offerings, Maybe it's not a physical thing in our life, like a statue of Bruce in your living room, but maybe it's something you devote your time, your energy to. Maybe it's something that when the work of God would come and say, God's Holy Spirit would prod you and say, hey, let's do this, you'd go, uh, come back to me later. I'm doing this thing right now. Or maybe it's some, quite simply one of those things like, you know God has said, do not do this, and yet, you're like, I'll do all the other things, but this one thing I'm going to keep doing, because I like it, and it's me. <clears throat> Let's all just you do you, right? And God says, no, no, no. Altar. Smash it. You want to live a day, the altar's got to come down. Let's pray. Lord, as we're here today in our hearts, we know that so many ways all of us build altars. And even when we do our best not to, there's just things in our life that we naturally set up. That we just naturally, as creatures, even if we don't find ourselves as religious people, we set up altars to worship. We give our time, our money, our devotion, really an essence of ourselves way more than we should. God, you call us to live in this world indeed, but you call us not to love this world, but to love you, to love your kingdom, and of course the coming of Jesus Christ. As we're here today, Lord, we look at our lives, we look at our community, we look at our country. And we look at the world. And God, as clear as daylight, there are so many idols that need smashing. God, whatever ones you call us to come and smash, let us do that faithfully. Especially in our own lives. So that God, we can represent your kingdom for the world. God, we want your blessing. We want the enemy off our property, our land, our families, our homes, our community. So God, we're willing to smash down and to smash down. Let's pay this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.
We're going to be celebrating Holy Communion here today. And uh, it's always a pleasure to come uh, here today. One of the things I was recently uh, with some other pastors and we were remembering was the power of this moment. And I know we do it twice a month. And it's easy to uh, come here this morning and to just go through the motions. But we were just discussing, you know, even John Wesley wrote about the power of what's about to happen. That this isn't just simply a remembrance, but it's God coming, being amongst us, feeding us once again, calling us to be his disciples. And so as we're here today, as we celebrate communion, let's do so with full hearts. We remember that on the night which Christ gave himself up for us, he took the bread, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do this for your team. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of my new covenant poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this for your of me. And so, Lord, in these your mighty acts, we offer ourselves as a praise and living sacrifice for you. Offering with your offering your sacrifice for us. Lord, we do pray upon these elements that they may be the body and blood of Christ, that in partaking in them, that Lord, we may be the body of Christ given for this world. Lord, make us one in spirit, one with each other, one in ministries of all the world. Until Christ comes <coughs> and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, <coughs> your Holy Spirit, your Holy Church, 